Welcome back to the Lime Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's gorgeous conversation was with my good friend, Paul Saladino. Paul is a medical doctor and boasts a whole host of credentials on top of that. He is the best-selling author of The Carnivore Code, and he's pretty much the guy in the world of the carnivore lifestyle, carnivore dietary choice. Since our last conversation, he has transitioned into eating more fruit and things of the sort. He spent some time with Hatsa people in Africa. Uh, he's gotten on a lot of really interesting adventures. So this is a really great way to catch up. We recorded this conversation inside of a sauna. And right before that, we jumped into a cold plunge. And then after that, we got into a float tank. So it was a pretty action-packed afternoon. And I think you guys are going to devour this conversation. I want to thank our sponsor, Hone, for supporting this podcast. If you drink too much coffee or you experience negative effects from coffee, I highly recommend trying out home. This is a blend of ceremonial grade matcha, USDA organic cordyceps, and methylated vitamin B12 and B6 that not only brings you the same energy as coffee, but the energy is longer lasting. Why drink matcha in the first place? Every serving boasts over 20 milligrams of L-theanine and 60 milligrams of antioxidants. This is equivalent to over 137 times the amount found in infusion used green teas and 116 times the amount found in a serving of acai berries. L-theanine helps to reduce stress, anxiety, and depression, and also boosts concentration. And antioxidants help protect you from free radicals, helping to reduce your signs of aging. And antioxidants also help keep your immune system thriving. Not only are you getting a boost of sustainable energy, but you're also getting a wide array of health benefits. My favorite way to drink hone is by mixing it with some hot water and full fat coconut milk for a delicious matcha latte. I'll typically drink this in place of a second cup of coffee and have found my energy levels to be higher than ever before. You can get longer lasting energy plus reduce your stress and anxiety with hone blends now by heading over to honeblends.com com and use a line at checkout for 30% off of your order. That's right, 30% off your order now by using a line code at checkout over at honeblends.com. That's H-O-N-E-B-L-E-N-D-S dot com. Use a line code for 30% off. All right, let's get into the program with my guy, Dr. Paul Saladino. Paul Saladino. What's up, brother? Thank you for this uh, impromptu podcast session inside of a sauna at Ocean Labs in Austin, Texas. Thank you. First one I've done in here. <laughs> so you moved to Mother Flip in Costa Rica. Yeah, man. It was an unexpected thing, but I went in February. There was a big storm here in Austin. I, I was coming back. Snowpocalypse. Snowpocalypse happened. I was actually in Dulles. I was in D.C. at the time coming back from Africa. And I thought, I'm in D.C. I can't get to Austin. Let's go to Costa Rica. And I just ended up staying longer and longer and longer. It resonated with me in a really cool way. And what's been the primary differences in like the way that you feel out there compared to the United States? It's hard to put into words. So I did a podcast with Michael Easter recently. He wrote this book, The Comfort Crisis. 
And in that book, he talked about this concept that I was never aware of until I read it. It's called Landscapes of Despair. And it's something that you've kind of hinted at or talked about in the past, the idea that in a lot of urban settings or semi-urban settings, we are faced with tons of right angles in our vision, and we never look long distances. And so being in Costa Rica, being in the jungle in Santa Teresa, where I live, you're always looking at trees and fractal patterns, and there's not a lot of right angles. Sometimes you're in a house, but a lot of times you're outdoors, and you're always looking at the ocean. And I'm always looking at the ocean, I'm surfing, I'm looking at the horizon, and there's not a lot of paved roads. In fact, until the last few months ago, there were zero paved roads. There's two kilometers of paved roads in the middle of town now, but that's it. The majority of roads there are dirt. So that you can't even see a straight line on the edge of the road. There's like a dirt road and then sort of a ditch and then trees. And it's just a very different landscape to be in. Just your visual environment is completely different. I'm always looking in the distance. Most places there where you stay, where you live, people want to have ocean views. You want to see the ocean. You go to watch the sunset every night. Life revolves around light. People get up early to surf in the morning. People gather in the evening to watch the sunset. It's just a different experience. And it was immediately something that struck me. I thought, wow, the quality of life is so good here. It's so, so good. And I just kept staying and staying. And now I bought a house there and it's amazing. Yeah. In Ayurvedic medicine, there's like, a, I've heard this from you know, Peter Crone. So we did a podcast like maybe like a year ago in my sauna in, in Santa Monica. And one of the things he brought up in that was that from an Ayurvedic perspective, they look at it as though the images that we're taking in, it's like we're consuming those images. So if you're consuming, you know, a cell phone and a computer or consuming an ocean and a, you know, a forest, it's literally, it's like there's a physiological, mental, emotional, hormonal translation to the consumption of that visual field. And just to even that thought in general, just to look at it as like, it's actually like physical information going in and how that informs us. And the thing that comes up to mind as you're talking about is that have you ever heard of levy flight patterning before? It's like the way that birds move around, the way that hunter-gatherers move around. And it's like it's also the way that people move around at college campuses or music festivals. Their movement is sporadic and all over the place. A lot like the way that you know your cells function in your body, and the way the blood circulates. It's like this cacophonous up, down, left, right, in, out type movement function. But the way that we've structured ourselves maybe since the Roman Empire, you know, whatever the heck, I don't know what exactly. It's more, okay, hard left, hard right, you know, into these angles. And it's like this sharper, more analytic, more kind of like up, down. It really informs the way that we think and feel. Is that something that you notice in like the way that you actually feel when you're in a place where you are kind of more scattered around compared to being in a place like here where it's like stop sign, you know, red light, green light, you know, is that something that you actually feel in yourself? Absolutely. I noticed that every time I've been back. So I've been living in Costa Rica for about five months now. And I've been back, I guess, two times in that amount of time, maybe three. And every time I come back to Austin, a place that I lived before and that I enjoy and that I have great community here, point in case is we're recording this in the sauna together in Austin. It feels different to me and it feels manicured. It feels it feels encased. It feels like the container suddenly got too small. And that creates a little bit of stress. And there's definitely a dissonance. There's a difference between being in Costa Rica and being here in a lot of ways. But yeah, just my daily life. Like you're on these paved roads that are very 
manicured and there's a lot of straight lines. The edge of your lawn at the curb is something that you don't see in Costa Rica. And it, whereas before I never noticed it, now it just seems out of place to me. I'm like, why is there not a little bit of wild there? You know, why are we just manicuring the perfect edge of that lawn and the sidewalk and the street? And yeah, you're right. It's like these sharp angles and it, it definitely feels different. I don't think either is like right or wrong. They just, it's, it's just, they'll have a different outcome. You know, so I don't, I don't like having a perfectly manicured lawn and everything and right angles and this and that. Like, I don't think it's like a, it's like, oh, they're failing, but it's just, I think it's starting from a point of like, what's, what's your desired outcome. And then from there proceeding forth. And if you want to be more in tune with your, probably your innate biology, it would probably make sense to have some rounded corners and a little bit of chaos every now and again. I think so. Yeah. That's what I noticed. So the house I have in Costa Rica doesn't have we're landscaping it, but it's not quite as manicured in the same way it is here. And it feels different. And I can see the ocean from where I live. So it's, it's just soothing. It's very calming. And it feels, it feels more in line with what I imagine we're used to as humans. I think there are a lot of these innate things that we don't think about enough that, that affect who we are. And I love that what you're saying about the consumption. Like, I'm super interested in the foods we put in our mouth and the micronutrients and how that informs our biology. And before moving to Costa Rica, I'd never thought as much about all of this visual Mm. nutrition and, and auditory yeah yeah i have howler monkeys and yeah. birds and parrots and so how does a person that is in kind of like the cookie cutter neighborhood and it's just you know they're bombarded by nothing but flat plains and in the form of you know roads and perfectly cut manicured lawns and stoplights and it's just all angles there's not a lot of what like traditional what you would think to be nature there how does a person if it matters, it seems like it matters, start to incorporate more of a natural lifestyle into that, you know, if, if they live in like a high rise in New York. I think you seek out the wildest places you can and, and you make that a part of your quote diet. Just like you might, I'm not a huge fan of multivitamins, but people are under, understand that analogy or they understand that paradigm. Just like you might take a vitamin every so often, or you might work out every couple of days. I think we need this input as humans to be fully alive or to really be the, the happiest, fullest version of ourselves, you got to seek that out. And that, that may sound trite, and I'm sure that people have said it, but it, it's something that I've realized in my own life much more recently. And we've talked about missing the ocean, and there are these inputs that are that are valuable for us. And so even if you're in New York City, obviously you've got Central Park or other parks, but, and I think I heard someone else talk about this, just laying under a tree and looking at the sky is an incredibly calming experience for a human. I think Zach Bush said that on Aubrey's podcast, and I thought, that's really cool. So even if somebody has a tree in their purview, you know, in, in their view or in their surroundings, you can recreate this experience by stopping under a tree. Even if you're on a sidewalk in New York City, stopping under a tree and looking up at the sky and seeing the blue of the sky through the, the branches and leaves of a tree, it's pretty calming for a human. And I don't know how people would perceive that in New York City, but I think that if you understand the value of that, you can choose to make that action regardless of how people are going to judge you. But certainly if you were in a park, it's not unusual for people to stop under trees and look up or to sit under a tree and look up. But that that's a really powerful lens that is pretty common. There are places where it's not possible. And those are places that I think are what Michael Easter begins to talk about as the landscape of despair. Like if you, if you cannot, if you literally cannot find a tree and look up at the sky through the branches of the tree, that's, that's a tough place to be as a human. I think it's the healthiest person might not ever even reflect on the fact that they're healthy. The happiest person might not reflect on that they're happy. You're in a great relationship. You might just be. You're like, wow. Just, and then you, if you would look from the outside in, you're like, that's a great relationship. It's like, well, we don't really 
talk about the fact that we have a great relationship. It's just we do these practices, you know, that innately they just bring out that like that's that's the outcome. And I think being in that scenario when you are beside the tree, just hanging out, you're having sunlight. You know, you're having your your it's the Shinrin Yoku that you're getting breathing in the phyton sides and all these various chemicals that are stimulating your immune system. You're grounding and those tree roots, especially if it's like an older one, it's going down deep into the ground where some of that electricity that might be coming off of local or electrical boxes or whatnot might not be able to get to. You know, there's so many variables in that. It's like this is this, this huge shotgun. There's just health. You're just getting splashed in the face by health. And then we're sold that health exists in a package or health exists in, you know, a sauna that costs $4,000 or whatever it is. But I think the reality is health is like far easier than what we think. And it's just a matter of putting ourselves in those, those situations. And, you know, I said that I moved to Costa Rica after I was in Africa and I spent time in Africa with the Hadza, who are some of the last remaining hunter gatherers on the planet. And, what you realize in that situation is that, I mean, again, this is going to sound passe, but for the majority of human evolution, <laughs> that is millions of years of hominid evolution, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and now Homo sapiens, all those things have just been automatic, right? You walked around outdoors, you ate animals, you ate them nose to tail, you gathered some plants, hopefully the less, less toxic ones, you ate some fruit, you got some honey, you spent time with your tribe, you were in the sun, you drank water, it was all automatic. And now, we've changed. And again, I like that you kind of reframed something I said earlier, and I'm not passing judgment on where we've come as humans, but I think that it's important, or at least I believe that as humans, we, though we've changed, though we live in a world that's differently now, that's differently shaped and has more right angles and has more sharp lines, I don't think we've lost our need for those other things that were automatic before, and now we have to make them intentional. So now people have to go to parks. You have to intentionally choose to go to a park and look at the sky through a tree, or you have to intentionally ground, or you have to intentionally swim in the ocean, or you have to intentionally separate yourself from electronic devices, or you have to intentionally think about the food you're eating because, and I think this is a great sort of metaphor for our life in general, if you just do what's automatic now, the way that our, our ancestors have done what's automatic for millions of years, it doesn't result in a good outcome for most people. If you just automatically easiest food to consume, if you automatically consume the easiest views, the easiest environments, the easiest social media, the easiest messaging from wherever you are, that's not so good anymore for most people. And then you have to go out of your way presently to even be with people. Yeah. Which is crazy. Loneliness is, I think it was like a Harvard study or somewhere, somewhere legit as compared to like smoking 18 cigarettes a day. And, you know, it's, it's associated with everything that sucks, essentially. <laughs> and, you know, as we're recording this, you know, there's this concerned about the Delta variant and COVID just isn't going away. And even though many people have been vaccinated, pros and cons of that are easy to discuss, but we're continuing to be in a situation where isolation from humans is challenging. I'm organizing, so I'm going back to Costa Rica tomorrow and I'm organizing a gathering in Santa Teresa. It's the first one I've ever done, but I just got the idea from one of my friends and I just basically put it out on social media and said, if you want to hang out in Costa Rica, come to this gathering. And there's there's no cost. There's no real organization. We've kind of put together an itinerary for people over the course of just organically. But I'm really excited to see all these people. I think it's going to be amazing. And I'm a little bit apprehensive about posting about it on social media, thinking about how much we're going to get judged for just being humans outdoors in nature. And it's possible that somebody in the group may have COVID. It's possible that people may spread it to other people. 
And so I, I think we're going to have to navigate that. And I'm sure that people will, will respond negatively if they see it on social media. But it was something that I wanted to do, and hopefully it won't be a bad decision. I want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Inside Tracker, for supporting this podcast. If you feel overwhelmed and confused by all the different diets, all the different viewpoints on nutrition, and all the different advice you're getting from thousands of health influencers you follow on Instagram or all the podcasts you listen to, I have something very important to share with you. You don't need to feel overwhelmed or confused anymore. Inside Tracker helps you optimize your body using science and technology to deliver ultra personalized guidance. They tell you what you need to do and specifically why. This is amazing because they realize that your body is unique and nutrition and fitness plan should be as well. They aren't copy and pasting plans. They're analyzing your blood, DNA, and habits to develop a plan that will set you up for ultimate success. No more questioning what you should or shouldn't be eating and doing. And finally, you can get some concrete answers for what is right for your body. Plus, Inside Tracker helps you track your progress and adjust your plan as needed based on real-time feedback from your body. Pretty cool shit, right? If you're ready to get serious about taking your health, fitness, and nutrition to the next level, don't even think twice about trying out Inside Tracker. It is hands down the best way to get an accurate and effective plan based on your own body. You can start your plan by getting 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store. All you have to do is head over to insidetracker.com slash align. That's 25% off the entire Inside Tracker store when you go over to insidetracker.com forward slash align. I also would like to take a moment and thank our sponsor, BioOptimizers, for supporting this podcast. When I talk about blood sugar, a lot of people tune out because they think it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic everybody needs to understand. One of the big keys to optimal health is to have balanced blood sugar. But what happens when you eat a donut? Your pancreas releases insulin, which tells your body there is plenty of energy, so now is the time to store fat. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter whether you eat a donut or drink a glass of orange juice, low-fiber processed carbohydrates from crackers to chips to cookies to juice all have a similar effect on blood sugar. When you take in a lot of carbs too quickly without much fiber or fat to slow down absorption, you could experience what we call a sugar crash, which leads to low energy, brain fog, and weight gain. So how do you lower your blood sugar levels to avoid storing fat as body fat? You want to do your best to reduce your intake of processed carbohydrates and make sure that you eat fat, protein, fiber, and greens at most meals. But none of us are perfect. We all cheat sometimes, so it just makes sense to have a way to maintain healthy blood sugar day in, day out, even if you have an off day, right? That's why I recommend a product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough by BioOptimizers. This easy-to-take supplement is the result of numerous tests to find the absolute best formula for maintaining healthy blood sugar. In fact, BioOptimizers went through five different formulations before landing on this one. 
Blood Sugar Breakthrough works to safely lower blood sugar after meals so that you can maintain a healthy weight and redirect carbs to your muscles where they can be burned for energy. This means you'll avoid the worst effects of high blood sugar, like weight gain, while enjoying more stable energy, mental clarity, and fewer cravings. For an exclusive offer, for my listeners only, just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash align and save 10% with the code align10. I am very much looking forward to you guys trying Blood Sugar Breakthrough. I think it's an excellent product and I think you will not be disappointed. So for 10% off, jump over to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health slash align and your exclusive 10% discount will already be applied by using that URL. All right, here we go. Back to the podcast. I wonder if the way that our visual field and like the cultural direction of things has gone, I wonder if that general path that we're kind of describing, if that's lended itself to this slugging on for as long as it is to continue the isolation and the separation. Like, I wonder if we lived in a culture that was, there was more rounded corners and it was more integrated and not autonomous nuclear family. You know, everybody has their own washing machine and lawnmower and weed whacker and all that. I wonder if it would, if this would look different, because it's now like we're coming up on how long has it been? A year and a half? Fucking yeah. feels like feels like a decade. Yeah. You're just like we're like really. I wonder if society and the way that we're formed kind of lends itself to to separation. I mean, from the beginning, I've kind of been asking these questions, not very popular questions, but I think it's been a challenging pandemic, and I'm sure your audience is sick of hearing about it, so we don't have to dwell on it, but. Well, the broader ideas around it, I think, are interesting. Yeah. Whether you should or shouldn't get a vaccine, I think that's like, I'm out of that conversation. Right. But the general sociology of what's going on is like, huh. Like it's a, I mean, there's going to be many a book and many a documentary about this. This is a major, major point in history. We're going to talk, this is like going to be like the Great Depression. We're going to talk, we're going to tell our grandkids about it. And I've posted about that too. I wonder what story we're going to tell. Yeah, who knows? Well, the story's not done. I know, but I also wonder what stories our grandkids are going to hear about this time and who will write those stories which gets into a little bit of social media you know, discussions. But I- I'm curious who's going to write those stories. And having lived through it, you and I both know our individual unique experiences, but who will write the stories that our children were here in 20 or 30 years about the COVID pandemic? And will they be stories of XYZ group was spreading misinformation and needed to be quelled? Or will there be stories of different narratives than that? It's, it's interesting to see how it goes. And will there be stories of, hey, we made these mistakes, right? Maybe we didn't respond quickly enough at this time, or, you know, we did all these lockdowns and actually they, they weren't as effective as we thought, or I don't know what story is going to be told to people or, and there was this, this orange faced dictator that was horrible and that ruined everything. And was the, you know, like, how are they going to tell it? Like, how would, how would you tell the story to people in 30 years and what bent is it going to have? You know, what angles it going to have on it? And, and it's going to be very hard to sort the reality. And I, I fear in some ways that history is going to be written by multinational corporations in this situation and social media outlets, which do not have the whole story. And, you know, I think there's been many things that happened that were, that were good in the pandemic and many successes and also things that were poorly handled. And I definitely think that humans being separated is, is a bad thing. And it's probably played into a lot of this, but it's, it's tricky. I wonder from your perspective, if you feel like there's any misinformation from our ancestry and your research into the Homo habilis and all our, our grandparents? No, I definitely think there are a few things that, that don't add up. I don't think that people understand 
quite where we've come from. And then this is all just recreation based on the fossil record. But there's this really interesting branch point in, in human evolution where there were a couple of species that were coexisting, specifically like Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and Paranthropus robustus. And we don't often hear about Paranthropus because Paranthropus went extinct. So it's interesting to think about the hominid species that went extinct. And obviously, Homo habilis and Homo erectus went extinct also, but we believe that they sort of evolved into Homo sapiens. But the lineage of Paranthropus appears to have just stopped. It doesn't appear to have evolved into anything. It's just, it was a hominid, it was a version of hominid that was terminal, essentially. You know, it was like a, you know, a Mac OS version 2.0 that never went anywhere. And there was a hard fork to use some crypto language that went another direction toward Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and then Homo sapiens. And that's a really interesting time in human evolution because it really was about the time that it appears from the fossil record that humans began eating more meat and more animals and more hunting. We've always been omnivores and we can talk about that, but there was this interesting branch point where Paranthropus sort of went to be this this more plant-heavy omnivore and Homo erectus and Homo habilis were more this animal-based omnivore. And the end of the story is that Paranthropus went extinct, Homo habilis, Homo erectus continued for 1.8 million years, perhaps the longest-lived Homo species we know of, potentially will outlive Homo sapiens, and then evolved into Homo sapiens. Hold on, say that it potentially will outlive Homo sapiens? Yeah, well, potentially will will have a longer evolutionary history than than Homo sapiens, not outlive, but just to have... I was like, where are these fuckers? (laughs) (laughs) There are many who believe that Homo sapiens will not last another 1.5 million years. We've only been around for three to 500,000, so who knows what Homo sapiens will do and and what will become, but to say that Homo erectus was around for 1.8 million is a long time, and that's an interesting thing, but Paranthropus went extinct, and so that, to me, is just... I would love to kind of bring that up to supporters of plant-based diets. I try to be pretty open-minded, but we know that there was a close cousin of ourselves that was more plant-heavy in their diet, and that, that species went extinct. So that's interesting. I don't think that's talked about because so much of what we hear today, and I apologize to your listeners if they've heard me say this on every single podcast, is just this, there's such a negative narrative toward meat and, and organs, and that's something that I think is is broadly incorrect and and widely, strongly, deeply misguided and wrong. And so I would love to talk to plant-based proponents about this history of humans as this ancestry of Paranthropus that no longer exists and say, well, how did that, what do you think about that? More more recently, the anthropology is interesting with these groups like the Hadza and the Ikung. And um, I think perhaps the most striking thing from my experience there, which again goes against the mainstream, is that there's no question if you ask the Hadza, and I haven't been to visit the Ikung, but I, I want to, so I can really only speak to the Hadza. And I didn't spend years with them. I spent weeks, but I spent a lot of time with them. If you ask them what their favorite food is, it's unequivocal. It's not like some members of the tribe say, well, you know, I like this. And other members of the tribe say, I like this. They, they all say meat. Sure. And, and they, all mean meat and or- they all mean animals. They all mean meat and organs. And it's unequivocal. And it comes back around so, so many times that it's it's uncanny. You say, well, what was the best day of your life? And they'll say, oh, that's the best day of my life would be like the perfect day, right? What would you do on your birthday? They don't, they don't think of birthdays, but you know, that's what we think of. Like, it's your birthday. What would you do? What would be the best birthday you'd ever have as an example? And 
they would just say like, well, the best day of my life would be the day that I hunt and kill the biggest animal and bring it back to my tribe. And we all celebrate and dance and sing. And they say, you know, you say, what's your favorite food? It's meat. What do you dream about? We dream about hunting and we dream about eating meat. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What determines the reproduction, you know, like what makes a man attractive to a woman? How good a hunter he is. And so it's just this theme that like, okay, there, I think it's pretty safe to say that some of the last remaining hunter-gatherers on the planet in northern northern Africa, Tanzania, their life evolves around meat. <laughs> so that's interesting, right? And, and take it for what it is. I see it as a broken time machine. It's like the DeLorean. It sort of works. It sort of doesn't. You know, it maybe, maybe takes you back 40, 50,000 years, but parts there's a few glitches in the matrix because they definitely don't live exactly like humans did 50,000 years ago, but it's the best version of the DeLorean from Back to the Future that we've got to like window back into the past and go, what, what were we doing as humans 50,000 years ago? What did our lives look like? What was important to us? How did we live? I mean, the Hadza live in thatched huts that, that are portable. They move camps. They're, they're nomadic in some ways. They have a group that's less than Dunbar's number. They usually are like 100 or 75 in a tribe. They have men and women, different fires. They hunt mostly every day with the men. It's a fascinating look back. And they, they generally wear animal skins as clothes. And they've chosen to do that. And some of them are wearing shorts. I've heard that in the last few years, that's a new thing. They used to not even really wear pants much, but I think it's become sort of a tourist adaptation for them to have pants on so that when tourists go visit them, they're not just walking around like bottomless or with just a loincloth or something on. So they're, they're a pretty good representation of where we might've come from as humans. And it's interesting to see like their life revolves around meat. This isn't to say they don't eat plant foods, but Again, in, in my experience with them, they, they do think about which plant foods are more and less desirable for humans. And they do tend to favor fruit. They love honey. And they think about things like tubers as like the least desirable. And there's been studies that look at this. And I don't know if we talked about this in the last podcast. But so Frank Marlowe is one of the main people who's researched the Hadza. He did his PhD thesis on them. He's written a book about them. And he's done studies with them where he asks them, like, what are your favorite foods? And they generally have five things that they like. And they like meat. They like honey. They like berries. They like baobab, which is a, a tree that's unique to Africa. And they like tubers. And tubers are always the last thing. And I got to eat the tubers while I was there. You can tell why they're the last thing because they're generally not that enjoyable. They're very fibrous. You spit out most of the quid, which is the fiber in the tuber, and you sort of chew them. You might get a little bit of soluble fiber, but you're basically getting some starchy liquid, some calories, and then you're spitting out most of the fiber, which is undigestible, which makes sense when you think about the way that roots would have been 50 to 100,000 years ago before we hybridized them and put them in the grocery store. So, so many of the foods that we think of today, and this is a bit of an aside, are not the way they would have looked to our ancestors for the majority of hominid human evolution. I think roots are a good example of that. Most roots were very stringy and fibrous and not very enjoyable. Have you ever had the purple sweet potatoes and they're very stringy? Kind of, sort of, not really. I used to get these. I don't know what it was, but I used to hate this. I would sometimes get purple sweet potatoes and they were they were good. They were starchy and they were enjoyable. And then sometimes I'd get a purple sweet potato and it was really stringy and it wasn't enjoyable. Most of the tubers that they eat are very stringy and they spit all those strings out. They're not, enjo- they don't, they're not really digestible. It's called quid. It's just a ton of fiber. So, so it's interesting for me to see that these hunter-gatherers, and this makes sense intuitively as a human, are thinking about plant foods in a certain way. And they're thinking, if I'm going to eat plants, which ones are more desirable, which ones are less desirable? And the Hadza do eat things like leaves occasionally, but it's, it did seem to me, and it has been talked about in anthropologic literature, that they're not their first food. They're not what they reach for. 
And we're told today, like, eat more salad, eat more kale. And for the Hadza, there's not a lot of leaves that they consume, and they're really probably going to go for the leaves when there's not much else available. They're very far down on the totem pole, and they're very, they're much less desirable. They're more like survival food. The baobab is an interesting fruit. It, it's kind of, it's been called the tree of life because they use it for so many things. And it has a fruit that has seeds, and they don't usually eat the seeds. They will eat the seeds if there's not a whole lot of other food. But again, it's like this type of food that's been relegated far down the totem pole. It doesn't even make it in the top five on you know, Frank Marlowe's studies or his, um, his surveys. But they'll eat it occasionally, but they don't really seek it out. So that to me was really interesting with the Hadza. And I think that's not really been talked about in anthropology and history. When, when we think about how our ancestors eat, people will often say, we're omnivores, they ate everything. That's why we've been successful because we had the opportunity to adapt. But I don't think there's been much discussion of like, okay, but what do they really want? And, and what were they really searching for? And what would they eat at the exclusion of other things if it was available? And my sense is that they would eat meat, they would eat honey, they would eat fruit at the exclusion of other things if they were available. And they would move on to like less desirable foods depending on the need for them. So that, that I think helps, gives us some clarity into how we eat as humans. And that's interesting. And I think that that, again, is flying in the face of the mainstream narrative. And my sense of the mainstream narrative, which could be biased, so I'll be curious what your sense of the mainstream narrative also is. My sense of the mainstream narrative is the, almost the reverse of that. Eat less meat. Nobody even talks about organs and the importance of organs. Eat more vegetables, which are the roots, stems, leaves, and seeds of plants, which I think are the things that hunter-gatherer tribes like the Hadza generally eat last. So they're telling us to eat more of those things, less of the things that the Hadza prefer. So that's an interesting juxtaposition for me. And then the last piece of that, in this long-winded answer to your question, is the fiber piece. And I would love to go back and spend more time with the Hadza, and I think I will at some point, and, and really dig into how much fiber they're getting. But you'll see it often quoted that our ancestors ate 150 grams of fiber a day. And when I was with the Hadza, there was no way we were anywhere close to that. There were a lot of days where they ate zero fiber, where we would hunt an animal and eat a baboon and then eat some honey that we got on the trip. So there were many days we had zero fiber. And there were some days we would get berries and they would spit the seeds out. So you're getting some soluble fiber in the berries, but not a ton. There were some days we would eat baobab, which is like this kind of, I don't know how to describe it. It's a hard shell fruit with seeds. And then the seeds are surrounded by this dry type of fruit pulp. It's not like cotton candy, but it's something akin to that. It's like a dried fruit. It's not like a liquid fruit like we're used to in the States. And so there's certainly some soluble fiber in there. But to imagine that they were eating 150 grams of fiber, I'm not sure how anyone is doing those calculations. And I, I wonder if they were thinking that they were eating the whole tuber and not spitting the quid out because I didn't see any other sources of fiber in their diet in those days. So to imagine that, our, that at least you know in this reasonable version of the DeLorean, imperfect version of this time machine back 50,000 years, to imagine that, that, they were, that, we, that humans have always eaten 150 grams of fiber, that doesn't seem to add up to me. I don't think that's totally true. It feels like some of the, the, the misinformation or misinterpretation or representation of meat eaters or eating meat from like a vegan or vegetarian or more plant-based side. I think the, like the missing component in that conversation is that a lot of the people, like I, I had Anya Fernald from Belcampo on here one, at least once, maybe a couple of times. And it was really striking to me how her, and she was a vegetarian at one point as well, I think, but she knew more about the care and support and nurturing of animals than almost any person I've ever met. And her role is to cultivate and, you know, create a life for these animals and then 
take their lives and then feed them to people and then go through that cycle of that. And she's doing it from a regenerative, in a regenerative way. So, you know, there's like the effect on carbon emissions and all the things we've already talked about. But it was, it was really striking to me that, and kind of ironic that I think the people, if you would go to maybe like a, maybe like the Hatsa or maybe Native Americans when they're wearing animal pelts and they're using it to build their teepees and they're like, like animals are such, they are their survival. It's like a one-to-one congruent relationship. And that I think is the, is the disconnect where from this modern industrialized farming perspective, industrialized farming of animals and plants, I think it's, it's shit either direction, whether it's plants or animals. And I think that from the, the plant-based side, they just see that like industrial complex side of cultivating animals and essentially just like an Auschwitz for cows and chickens. It's like, yeah, like everybody agrees that's heinous. But the story that's left out is the people that's like, that truly are the custodians of animals because it's the animals that they owe their life to. And it's that, that prayer and the worship and the, you know, the respect and, and like honoring it. And that's the, I think the missing piece. It's like not what you do, it's how you do it. I couldn't agree more. This is interesting because it brings us back to this idea of how the story is told and which pieces of the story are left out and which pieces are highlighted. And I think that for most of us, our greatest aspiration in life is to be a good storyteller. And so I really find a lot of satisfaction in trying to tell the story a little differently or add components to the story that are left out. And the piece that you're noting there is super important. This piece that most humans understand that this type of factory farming of animals is not good for anyone. It's not good for the land. It's not good for an ecosystem. It's not good for the animals. It's not good for humans in a lot of ways. And it kind of supports things that nobody really wants to support. The flip side of the equation is that the story that gets left out is, and I don't, we don't have to go too far down this rabbit hole, is the story of monocrop agriculture and, and the story of how heinous that is too. And I think that that's the same, that's the same thing. People don't see factory farming of plants in the same way they see factory farming of animals, but they're very parallel in the way that they affect the land, in the way that they destroy ecosystems, in the way that they may affect human lives negatively. What about all the people who are working on these fields, often migrant workers, being sprayed, glyphosate is being sprayed on them, over them. Like factory farming of plants exists too. So if we're going to really try and change things for the better, we should make sure that we understand the whole story and that that we shouldn't factory farm plants either. And that that's an important piece that gets left out. And then, as you said, the other piece is that regenerative agriculture is the cool story, right? That's the happy ending of the story, saying it's actually possible when we mimic the way that animals have always moved across the earth. We recreate ecosystems. And if you go to a regenerative farm, it's such a cool place. It almost feels like a wilderness. It doesn't totally feel like a wilderness because there's obviously grass and cows, but there's also birds and insects and butterflies and dragonflies and it's on green grass and there's usually a stream or something and there may be a few trees on the field or something. It feels a little bit more close to, quote, nature than it would in the factory farm. It's, it's, it's completely different. I like being at places like White Oak Pastures, which is the main regenerative farm I've been to. I know I want to get out to Belcampo in Northern California and see that and I love what they're doing. And, and White Oak is the place I spent a lot of time and it's, it's an amazing space. Like, is that where the stuff from Heart and Soil comes from? Heart and Soil comes from New Zealand. And we're working on a regenerative supply chain, which is going to be based in like Utah, potentially Georgia, and a couple other places in the U.S. as well. So that regenerative farm that I've spent time at in Georgia is, is amazing. It's just, it's cool. There's big flocks of birds flying around and landing on the cows and working with them. And, you know, no matter where you raise a cow, they're going to have bugs on them. So the birds are eating the bugs and 
it's just a very cool space. It feels akin to what we might imagine on the plains with buffalo, even though it is totally different. You know, it's a different species. It's a cow, but you can imagine this is the way it might have looked. And the animals are consuming all the same stuff we were talking about that I, in like an excessively long-winded way, was describing the, the levee flight pattern and, yeah. you know, the way that they're consuming their environment. Like, you're gathering... I, I mean, this sounds maybe a little hokey. I'm sure there's some way to scientifically back it up, but I think you're gathering the entire almost like fingerprint of that animal's life. Like there's an imprint of the experience of that animal. And I think the images that they're taking in and the quality of food they're taking in and the way that they're walking around and the, maybe the thoughts, I might imagine cows are having some thoughts throughout the day and the relationships, like all of that, I think there's there's some type of, I don't know how to describe it correctly, but I think there's a code there of sorts. And when you take that code and take it into your code, I think there's a relationship there. And when you're taking the code from either a plant or an animal that's having, you know, all like the bad in quotation things that we're describing, I think there's an impact. It's not just what humans take in, but it's also what animals take in. And I've heard people say that, and I think it's a great adage. It's not just what you eat, it's what you eat eats. It's how you live and how what, you, what you're consuming, how they live. And, and maybe what they saw and what they listened to. Yeah, and the environment they were in. And there's been all sorts of studies that the nutritional composition of meat changes in those situations. And this is a fascinating thing to talk about, that meat, organs, all food, essentially, even plant food, right? It's much more than just macronutrients. And thinking about macronutrients is a great first step in terms of health education, nutrition education for people. And there's many more steps that are equally, if not more fascinating and enlightening as we get into the, the steps of micronutrients. So you can take a plant or let's just take a steak in this case, and it's more than just protein and fat. You can't just recreate the macronutrient profile of a steak with bamboo and cellulose and soy protein and call it a Beyond Burger and expect it to nourish someone in the same way. It's like an imprint of a Van Gogh compared to the original image. Well, it's not even that. It's like a tracing of a Van Gogh without all the color because of all the micronutrients that are in the real thing. So if you look at a steak, most people think of steak as protein and fat or protein and some fat, depending on how fatty the cut of steak is. But what about the zinc? What about the taurine? What about the anserine, the choline, the carnitine, the vitamin K2, the biotin, the folate? All of these micronutrients, right, that are in foods that affect the way it's digested, that are your programming, that are the message to your body. And those nutrients, that messaging at a micronutrient level is different when you feed a cow on grass than when you feed a cow on grains and you finish a cow on grains. And so that's, that's extremely different. You can't you can't recreate just with macronutrients with a Beyond Burger or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich what you get in the steak because of all the micronutrients. And the micronutrients are really where the magic happens, for lack of a less cliched phrase. Like Those are all the little pieces that fill in the gears and levers and knobs in our body that allow the biochemistry to function. We are much more than just a macronutrient-driven machine, which is why when we do this reduction of science and we try and recreate animal food, Specifically, from my perspective, that's what I think about a lot is the recreation or the trouble, the, the real potential problems with trying to recreate animal food from a, an equivalent or comparable macronutrient perspective with plant food, leaving out all of the unique micronutrients in there. That's going to be hugely catastrophic for humans. Thanks so much for doing this, man. We got to go. We have a, a sensory deprivation tank appointment. We probably, do. Probably right now. So heart and soil. If people want to start integrating some, and even I've, I've had this conversation with a lot of people that are plant-based that still want the benefits of, 
you know, organs and some of the other parts of the animal, but they, they just, they're in a place where it's like the idea of cooking a, st- a steak is disgusting to me, but I do acknowledge there is vital nutrition in there. And so I've actually recommended your product to, to some people like that already. Yeah. So where should people go from here? Yeah. So hardened soil is desiccated organ supplements. We take all the organs from cows raised in New Zealand. And as I said, going to be soon in the U.S. that are grass-fed, grass-finished on regenerative farms that look a lot like Bluffton, Georgia, where White Oak Pastures is. And we put them in a freeze dryer, desiccate them, add nothing else, and then put them in a capsule. So it's a great way for people to get organs without actually having to eat the organs and cook the liver and see it. There's nothing added. There's nothing synthetic. But it's it's what I believe in strongly because it's an easy first step to entry for people to get these organs. And I love the application that you're talking about, which is for people that aren't ready to go to steak or meat, the organ complex supplements are a fantastic thing because it's in a capsule. You're not going to taste it. And a lot of times these organs get wasted. So these animals are going to be used for meat regardless. And we're taking the organs that are just along with the cow. And instead of them getting thrown into compost or being put into dog food, we're using them for humans. Now, people hear the dog food thing and it's like, these are all human grade things, right? It's like very high quality food, but a lot of times the scraps go into compost or they go in the ground or they throw them out. Sometimes they'll get used for really super high quality dog food, but it's all really good quality stuff and that's good for humans. So There's an interesting book by Paul Arden that I've mentioned here a bunch of times called Whatever You Think, Think the Opposite. And I think it's such an interesting irony of a lot of the things that are the most impactful to our well-being are the the cheapest or even free. And in this case, it's like the organs. It's like, oh yeah, you mean the trash. It's like, yeah, yeah, the trash. That's the good stuff. <laughs> it's like, what are we doing? <laughs> That's the way the Hods would think about it too. When we, when we hunted animals, the organs were the first thing to get consumed. And I'll tell you that if the organs are the first thing to get consumed, and if you have extra liver or heart, try waving it in front of your dog or your cat and they'll know what's up. They'll go running for that stuff. Like animals thrive on the organs too. And what's your hand on, on the gram? At CarnivoreMD and Heart and Soil is just heartandsoil.co.co if you want to get into that. Thank you, sir. Thank you, man. I appreciate you making time to do this. My pleasure. This is very serendipitous. We had no plan on, on recording this. The plan was literally five minutes before. It's was like, should we do a podcast? And now here we are. We're going to be sitting in the sauna talking about this stuff anyway. Probably would have had almost an identical conversation, maybe slightly less structured-ish, probably not. And uh, here we are. It's all it's, it's all wrapped up. So thank you so much. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. Let's go get in the uh, cold in the plunge. Tank. Oh, cold plunge. Cold plunge first and flow tank. Yeah. All right. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you guys so much for tuning into that conversation. I hope you got a lot of value from it. Per mention, I think Paul is an absolute wizard. I really have tremendous respect for his awareness of history, biology, anthropology, and I'm grateful to get to share these conversations with you. If there are any specific parts that you enjoyed, por favor, share them with your friends. A likely place to do it would be over on the Instagram. You can tag me at Align Podcast, and you can tag Paul at CarnivoreMD. Thank you guys so much for reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen to this, and thanks just for tuning in. Thanks for sharing, and I love seeing you guys in the streets when I do. I love reading your messages on the Instagram. Appreciate people going through the online programs, buying the book, The Align Method. You guys are amazing. I appreciate you very much, and I'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.